Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we are joined by one of the great women compliance co-host, Lisa Fine. And we have a potpourri of topics today. Matt on compliance lessons from the AMEC Foster Wheeler FCPA enforcement lessons. Jay on the MLB cheating scandal. Lisa on the compliance response to COVID return to work. And I sit in as well. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode of Everything Compliance. Today, we are thrilled to have a guest panelist, Lisa Fine, well-known, one of the quick ladies, great women in compliance. And Lisa, we're thrilled to have you. So first of all, welcome to you and welcome to Everything Compliance. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. It's really, really an honor. All right. Well, we're going to go with um, Matt Kelly, Jay Rosen. Tom Fox, and then Lisa will wrap up for us. So, Matt, what has been on your mind this week? Yeah, thank you, Tom. So what has been on my mind is our very first FCPA enforcement action of the Biden administration and of 2021, which happened at uh, the very end of June, where Foster Wheeler, or technically Amec Foster Wheeler, which owns Foster Wheeler, and in fact, technically, technically, the John Wood Group, which owns AMEC Foster Wheeler. We can get into who owned what and due diligence as part of our discussion here, but the ultimately construction and engineering services giant, the John Wood Group, which is based in Britain, uh, has agreed to pay $171 million for misconduct committed by its subsidiary, subsidiary Foster Wheeler. Uh, which happened in the early 2010s when Foster Wheeler tried to break into the Brazilian energy market. Uh, So ultimately, long story short, John Wood Group has agreed to pay $171 million to regulators in the UK, in the United States, and in Brazil for, as I said, uh, due diligence, I guess, is probably the the key lesson for compliance officers here for this corruption scheme that happened in the early 2010s, where basically Foster Wheeler, which was a U.S. company headquartered in Houston, was trying to enter the Brazilian energy market. Of course, that would mean you have to deal with Petrobras, which is the notoriously corrupt uh, energy state-owned oil and energy business in Brazil. And so, Tom, first, we have to just get into the weirdness of the corrupt agents and overseas agents that uh, Foster Wheeler wound up working with, because that really is the big lesson for compliance officers here is how do you govern your third party agents who were kind of out of control in this whole saga? Uh, What happened was, first off, just the introduction of these two agents to Foster Wheeler is worthy of some discussion itself. It begins with an operative in Italy who was only identified in court documents as the Italian agent. Uh, The Italian agent had a Brazilian colleague, the Brazilian agent, and both of them were 
I guess, members or customers of some private high-end fashion clothing shop for men in New York City, along with Foster Wheeler's non-executive chairman. So the Italian agent convinced the store manager in New York to uh, broker an introduction with the Foster Wheeler non-executive chairman, and uh, even to convince the Foster Wheeler executive that the Italian agent was legit, uh, he passed along confidential Petrobras business documents, which I guess flowed from Petrobras to the Brazilian agent, to the Italian agent, to the New York clothier, to the Foster Wheeler executive. Uh, if you need a flowchart here, folks, I would recommend it because this is just this bad version of, I don't know, some intro and act one of a James Bond movie. Um, but ultimately, the Foster Wheeler executive decides to meet with the Italian agent. And then they start saying, well, should we work with this Italian agent and his Brazilian friend or not? And uh, Foster Wheeler was looking to bid on a Petrobras contract for $190 million to design a gigantic uh, fertilizer to chemical plant. And uh, basically, the Brazil manager for Foster Wheeler, he knew this was a bad idea. And he even had written to the U.S. executives, don't use the Italian and the Brazilian agents because if we do, uh, we're going to have overseas agents lining up outside our door to run the same kind of a shakedown on every single project we try to bid on down in Brazil. So let's not open this can of worms. Um, they knew that they had problems with this. The Italian agent was not going to pass due diligence with Foster Wheeler. And yet the Italian agent just kind of hung around and persisted. And if you read the settlement documents, it's almost bizarre that here are, is the Foster Wheeler Brazilian executive emailing his bosses, we shouldn't deal with him. While the Italian agent is emailing this same Brazilian in-country manager for Foster Wheeler saying, I'm working up my commission structure for the deal. And he just persisted. And eventually, of course, uh, the, the Foster Wheeler did issue an interim engagement contract for the Italian agent ahead of him passing due diligence. He had not gone through due diligence with Foster Wheeler yet. Uh, it looked like he might fail. They had a policy, no interim agreements with agents before due diligence. That went out the window. And they hired the Italian agent uh, who then didn't pass due diligence. So they got rid of the Italian agent, but they onboarded the Brazilian agent who then subcontracted a lot of the work back to the Italian agent. And this is all going on 2011, 2012, uh, and then, of course, ultimately, uh, invoices are submitted with no documentation. Uh, millions of dollars are going to the agents, which then wind up in Petrobras's pockets. Um, you know, bribes are being paid. The work isn't getting done or whatever work the agents were supposed to do. They were never going to do it anyways. Uh, ultimately, Petrobras uh, terminated the contract early anyway. So whatever huge amount of riches Foster Wheeler was hoping to get, they didn't, although they did make about $12 million in profit while this scheme was running. Um, Foster Wheeler subsequently becomes acquired by AMEC. So a lot of headlines refer to AMEC Foster Wheeler, which was subsequently acquired by the John Wood Group. Uh, so you will see also a lot of headlines saying the John Wood Group has agreed to pay $171 million. Um, they did not get any credit for voluntary self-disclosure because they didn't do that. John Wood did get some credit for regulators because they implemented a rather extensive uh, suite of compliance program reforms long after the corruption had already happened. 
but Tom, I think my basic thoughts here, are, you know, what are the lessons that compliance officers here and now in 2021, what could we learn here? Um, I was really intrigued to see this breakdown in governance of third party agents and internal controls that happened at Foster Wheeler. Uh, specifically, for example, when Foster Wheeler violated its own policy against interim agreements before due diligence had been completed, uh, the legal department had drawn up the uh, engagement letter anyways in violation of its own policy. Uh, that is a problem compliance officers might encounter today. And how would you design a compliance process to avoid that sort of a thing where you're onboarding an agent before due diligence is complete? Uh, I would say that the idea here today and now would be a lot more automated control over contract management, where contracts that go against policy cannot be issued until due diligence is complete. Uh, that should, I, say, I would say, include a rigorous uh, exception request policy so that maybe there is some urgent circumstance where we need to hire this agent right now, even though due diligence is incomplete. Um, those circumstances arise, and I get it, but in that case, you should have extensive documentation requirements so that whoever decides to approve this non-standard engagement with an agent, that's going to stick out like a sore thumb. And you're going to have documentation all over the place about why we thought this was necessary, because you're going to need that documentation should everything go south. And then regulators are suddenly asking, why did you do this? So really, it's all about trying to prevent these sort of contracts creeping into your system anyways, because you have fixed controls that they can't be issued without due diligence. Or if you have to, that has to go way up the chain of command and stick out like a sore thumb with lots of documentation so that you have provided as much assurance as you possibly could. Uh, but you know, the, the other big lesson that I'm kind of rolling around in my head is just how the Italian and the Brazilian agents didn't take no for an answer. And in fact, the FCPA blog had a really interesting post from Dick Casson talking about whether Foster Wheeler was almost kind of afraid of their agents and they were bullied into this, that they knew if they didn't hire these agents, the agents would work against them with Petrobras and cause them all sorts of business problems. They were never going to get the business contract. Um, I'm sure that does happen. That's probably not news to a global corporation that if you try to keep corrupt agents at length, they're going to turn against you anyways and cause you different sorts of problems and a practical level on the field. So what are you going to do? Um, the, uh, Dick Casson even explored the idea that did these agents and Petrobras kind of set a trap for Foster Wheeler, that they couldn't say no to them and then they were going to line their pockets anyways. Um, and I struggle with what's the right answer there, because ultimately the right answer is don't do business with those kind of people and don't do business in those kind of countries, except Brazil is a big country and energy is a lot of money. And I see the temptation there to try and figure out a way to, to do this. And I do wonder if you have rotten corporate values at the top, and maybe we could speculate that Foster Wheeler did, um, what's the control for that? I don't know. But I was struck by a quote from Charles Kane. He is head of FCPA enforcement for the Securities and Exchange Commission. And he said, quote, the potential for a new market cannot be a siren song that overwhelms good corporate governance, close quote. And I think that's a powerful message for companies to take home is that 
look, yeah, sure, some of these corrupt markets look really tempting, and you're going to make a killing for a while. And the SEC and the Justice Department are not going to care. They're going to catch up with you eventually anyways, and then they're going to make sure that you pay a price for trying to find a way to make it work. And guys, if you're dealing with agents this corrupt, they are not going to make it work. It's going to be difficult. Just don't do it. That's a simplistic answer for a difficult problem, and I get that. But Tom, that's what I was staring at with the uh, Foster Wheeler uh, enforcement action, which is we've only scratched the surface. I don't know if there are other questions or issues we want to raise here today, but but it was an interesting case and one that was worthy of a lot of thought. Hey, Rosen, do you have a question for Matt? Yeah, I've got a double header for you, Matt. Um, I believe you sure. mentioned that this uh, matter uh, dates back to 2011. So I'm wondering about your thoughts about why it took 10 years to settle this. And then you did mention that this is the first uh, FCPA matter brought to light by Biden's DOJ. And I'm wondering um, if you can expand upon your lesson learned and what is the Biden administration signaling out with this as their first matter? Uh, well, I'll take the, the first question first, and then I'll, I'll try to dodge the second one because it's such an interesting question that I'm not sure we know what the answer is. But uh, I was also struck by the fact that this was 10 years in the making. It started in 2011 and 2012. Um, the misconduct happened at least into 2014. But I was very intrigued to see that the corrupt entity here, Foster Wheeler, was acquired twice over the course of several years. And did neither of those acquirers turn up any evidence that this was a thing, that this was an issue? Um, we are not entirely clear on how the Justice Department became aware of this bribery case. Uh, we could maybe guess that perhaps Brazilian regulators who were investigating Petrobras in the middle of the 2010s, maybe they found out about it and alerted the Justice Department and um, and British regulators as well. But how did John Wood or AMEC not understand that this was present and an issue? Or if they did find it, why did they sit on it instead of trying to come clean? Um, we don't know. And I, I I don't have much of an answer beyond that. Like I, I, We also don't know exactly when Justice Department regulators started looking at this instance. Um, Jay, you're right that this is the first one coming out in the Biden administration, but I'm, it must have begun under the Trump administration, which you know, didn't really slouch off on FCPA enforcement anywhere near as much as people thought the Trump administration would when it first took office in 2017. Um, I don't necessarily know that we can draw big conclusions yet about what this enforcement action means. I'm more curious to see when we start getting, say, speeches from the deputy attorney general of the United States or the act, the assistant chief, in, the assistant AG in charge of the criminal division, which I am pretty sure he has not yet come up for a formal confirmation vote, but he did win committee approval from the Judiciary Committee. I don't think he's taken office yet, but he's going to. That's going to happen. I would look more to statements from sitting Justice Department officials, particularly around what they want to do with penalties as opposed to just disgorgement. Um, I would also look to the SEC, what they might do with penalties, because they've already had some commissioners talk about a more forceful approach to penalties, not just disgorgement, but actual penalties. Um, I, I think maybe this first case here is just too new that we 
haven't had a, a long period of leadership from the very top. Gary Gensler's only run the SEC for two months, and the Justice Department is still trying to staff up completely. So I might give you a different answer in six months if we see a different FCPA enforcement action, and maybe we have some speeches to tie the two together. But I don't know. I just I will say that the FCPA enforcement is not going to go away. It's I assume it's only going to go up, and they'll be more liberal with uh, penalty action. But we'll have to wait and see exactly how it shakes out. Lisa, do you have a question for Matt? Well, I have a question, but a little bit of a comment about it. Um, when when we talk about all these things, I think about them from the day-to-day practitioner perspective. Um, and I, I see two things here that I think we all have to think about now and going forward. One is during all these times, it's you're talking about these, you know, bad agents are bad agents, but at the same time, you have the business pressures and you know, sometimes the cultural differences that are being interpreted so that these things may be looked at um, a little bit differently. And I think one of the things for us to keep in mind, and if you have any thoughts about that, you talked a little bit about it earlier for compliance officers is, you know, how do we make sure people talk about tone at the top, but if your top is the middle, how do we make sure that these lessons are learned or heard um, going forward? Because it is, we can say, don't you, you know, Bad agents are bad agents. It's going to come back and bite you. But for the people that you know did this eight or ten years ago, someone encouraged it and didn't stop it. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but it's just a comment from you know how we these things. When I see them start, they start at a very different level, and then I don't even know if people fully understand as it moves along. You know, I, I think that is an excellent point to raise, and maybe even Foster Wheeler's a perfect counterexample of this, because as I read the settlement documents and look at what the, the facts are laid out, it looks to me like the middle here, the Brazilian country manager, he was the one who got it right at first, and he said, don't use these people, or we're going to have a line of agents out the door shaking us down for everything. And yet somehow, by six or eight months later, the situation had flipped, And he was working with the Brazilian and the Italian agent, and they were communicating to each other through personal emails to get this business done. And we all know what that means. And I I wonder if maybe he absorbed the inverse lesson from the top that actually we're going to use these guys because this is a lucrative opportunity and we're doing it. Um, But the Brazil country manager seemed to have it right at the start. And yet somehow that all went by the boards within 12 months or so. It's it's a fascinating thing to study as you get into the details. Jay Rosen, what has been on your mind? Well, thanks, Tom. Um, a couple of weeks back on this week in FCPA, you and I spoke about baseball and the fact that they're in the midst of another scandal. Well, I wasn't around in 1919 for the Black Sox scandal where players were accused of taking payments to throw games. But there have been three Major League Baseball scandals in my lifetime. First off, in the 1990s, we had the steroid scandal, which such giants of the games, Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, and Bean Towns and Bronx's own Roger Clemens. While the record books have been altered in asterisk, MLB survived. Within the past two years, both Tom's Astros and my Red Sox were caught up in the sign-stealing scandal. Some say allowing them to steal recent World Series from the Dodgers. Now we have the baseball substance doctoring scandal. So how do we get here? It's a good question. Some say it's about the imbalance between pitching and hitting, offense and defense, the dead ball and live ball errors. 
The spitter ran rampant in the 1910s and the 20s, and we had the steroid-juiced offensive juggernauts of the 90s and 2000s. What's different now is that major league follows uh, league, league followers estimate that more than 70% of the pitchers are doctoring their baseballs. Up until recently, umpires took their cues from managers, and managers were not keen to blow the whistle against opposing pitchers as their own pitchers were pretty much using the same stuff. Since the tragedy of the insurrection on January 6th, Pressure has been building to commence a 9-11 style commission to figure out what happened on that dark day and how to prevent it from occurring again, while at the same time providing ample support to the Capitol Hill and Metro Police forces that they will never be put in that position again. Just as MLB managers are scared to call out the op opposing team's pitchers for doctoring the ball, all but two Republican members of the House, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinziger, voted along with the Democratic majority to create such a commission. Now, the Republicans know what happened and what will continue to come out, and that is why they withdrew their report from a bipartisan committee proposed earlier this year, and are now at a point where House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has threatened to strip any Republican member of their committee assignments if they accept an offer from Nancy Pelosi to serve on the select committee to investigate January 6th. So let's check our scorecard. We have MLB managers who don't say anything about pitchers using foreign substances to gain an advantage. And we have Republican congressmen and senators who refuse to join a committee which will attempt to bring to light those behind the anus January 6th insurrection. Both parties moved to silence for fear of confirming what the public already sees and knows. Strike one, steroid scandal. Strike two, sign stealing scandal. Strike three, spider tack. Whether you're a major league baseball or the United States Senate and Congress, we all know what we see. The song used to say, one, two, three strikes and you're out at the old ball game. Well, I think we've seen many more than three strikes, so it's time to start calling them like we see them and like we know and that the fix is on. The question is, how do we and how can we come back to reclaim the stature of the game of baseball and more important, the integrity of our elected officials? I didn't end up where I thought this commentary was going to go, but I thank you for letting me bend your ears and let me know if you've got some questions. Well, Jay, I have a question for you. Um, the baseball response to the um, latest scandal was to require the umpires to check pitchers at multiple times during the game. Uh, that led to some fairly hilarious scenes where pitchers literally disrobed on the field to show they didn't have any illegal sticky substance in a otherwise uh, covered part of their body. Nevertheless, we've already seen spin rates go down and hitting go up uh, really from mid-June going forward. Uh, would that indicate to you that perhaps baseball's on the, on the right path and or that uh, players are really now disincentivized to, or at least pitchers are disincentivized and that uh, whatever MLB did is working or something else going on? 
Uh, I would go with your latter comment, Tom. I'm, uh, I, I used to be very optimistic about these things, but when you do what we do and we look at ethics, compliance, and corruption, and you see this or you hear this daily drumbeat about people abusing the system, um, I guess my first thought would be, I think the sample size is too small if we've only been talking about the past couple of weeks. But, um, you know, I'm of the mind that even if they get through this rough patch, I'm sure there's something else. You and I often talk about that. You can't write this stuff in a movie script, right? Well, it's like, what is the, ne I'm not confident that this is the last scandal for MLB. I'm sure there'll be another one to keep us occupied right around the corner. All right. Well, I'm going to sit in today. And what I want to talk about is the document released this week by the U.S. Treasury Department, or two documents. One was entitled Statement on the Issuance of Anti-Money Laundering Countering the Financial Terrorism National Priorities, and two, Anti-Money Laundering and Countering the Financing of Terrorism national priorities. So the first was a statement and the second was a uh, list of the priorities. These came about from the AML law of 2020. Uh, they were required uh, by that law. And although this was issued by the Department of the Treasury, FinCEN, specifically towards the financial services industry, I think this has a lot of application to the greater compliance community uh, as well. So there were uh, seven priorities, excuse me, eight priorities listed, quote, in no particular order were corruption, cybercrime, foreign and domestic terrorist financing, fraud, transnational criminal activity, drug trafficking, organization activity, human trafficking, and human smuggling, and proliferation financing. I think this is extraordinarily significant for the compliance community that uh, all of us work in. Uh, outside of financial services and financial institutions, because it shows to me the direction the government is going. When you pair this with President Biden's statement on corruption as a national security issue, I, I see that the U.S. government is going to move aggressively to require companies to not only not engage in these activities, but actively resist these activities. And part of that active resistance resistance is through having a competent compliance program in place. So we have, uh, once again, no, without any particular order, but nevertheless, corruption is definitely listed in this. The U.S. government is clearly going to uh, clearly see corruption as an important issue. Uh, President Biden says it's a national security issue. And here we have the Department of Treasury listing it as one of the priorities. I think every non-financial institution compliance practitioner really needs to understand that it's clear the U.S. government is going to make this an even greater priority than simply FCPA enforcement, which we've seen over the past 45 plus years. Also, fraud and human trafficking, human, human smuggling, uh, transnational criminal activity, and uh, domestic and foreign terrorist financing. If you are engaged in any activity which could be seen as money laundering for any of these, I think that uh, you will uh, be in a world of hurt, starting with the Department of Treasury, but I think this is going to migrate to the Department of Justice, Securities and Exchange Commission, and other groups. 
certainly the financing of domestic terrorism has not been uh, a listed priority previously. And now we have uh, that uh, uh, clearly uh, identified by the Department of Treasury. But for the broader compliance community, I think that uh, everyone needs to understand that these issues are going to become more prevalent. And although these priorities, once again, are directed to financial institutions, uh, if you get caught in one of these uh, in corruption with cybercrime or the victim of cybercrime engaging in fraud or having fraud against your company, human trafficking and human uh, smuggling, these are all topics that are regularly discussed at compliance events. Uh, Commentators uh, such as Matt uh, talk about them on a regular basis, and that you need to have compliance programs in place uh, to deal with uh, each one of these activities. Uh, Because if you get caught, the Department of Justice, I don't think it's going to have a lot of sympathy for you uh, claiming, well, you didn't know or it wasn't a priority or it was a priority. We just hadn't gotten to this. So Mike Volkoff is our colleague. Mike Volkoff often says the Department of Justice uh, telegraphs uh, quite clearly the direction it's going. I think here we have the U.S. government telegraphing quite clearly to both financial institutions and non-financial institutions, public U.S. public companies, U.S. private companies. These are our priorities. And if you engage in um, something uh, that uh, uh, allows one of these to happen on your watch, I think the U.S. government is going to uh, come down on you uh, quite hard. Matt, do you have a rebuttal to my remarks? Well, I I somewhat do, Tom. Um, I I would even say that maybe the metaphor here isn't that the regulators, and specifically FinCEN's latest statement on AML, um, it's not a telegraphing of their issues. It's more like they're setting up smoke signals, which you can see from a distance and you know what they mean. But I still think a lot of compliance officers would read through, say, FinCEN's statement and say, okay, and this means what exactly? And we don't really have a good answer because like all good smoke signals, they are far away and they quickly waft off into the breeze. Um, Really, what we're going to be talking about here specifically for AML is customer due diligence, building customer identification uh, programs, building customer risk profiles and getting a bead on what these risks are, not just with your customers generally, but their specific transactions, which might evolve over time. Uh, and you're also going to have more attention to suspicious activity reporting, which in in my observation, it seems like banks in the United States report too many, and a lot of them are false positives, as opposed to banks in Europe where they don't report them at all. And that's why we see these massive AML settlements uh, all over Europe in the last 18 months or so. We know that, and we know what the problems are, but how exactly are compliance officers supposed to improve these exercises to satisfy these enhanced expectations from the Biden administration? I don't know that we have a lot of specificity on that yet, and I don't know when we're going to get it. So I applaud the smoke signals coming up from the Justice Department, from the from FinCEN, from the Biden administration. I think it's a great idea to make anti-corruption a national security concern, but 
I still think that we are kind of twiddling our thumbs waiting here to see how does this translate into exact compliance program improvements I need to make right here and now. And I, I don't know that we have enough answer on that. I think at this point, uh, we don't. So perhaps we'll have to wait for more smoke signals. Uh, now over to our special guest, Lisa Fine. Lisa, what has been on your mind recently? Well, as somebody who is you know, in, in practitioner day to day right now, obviously thinking a lot about what's happening as uh, with travel, with going back to the office, the the uh, COVID reset, as some are calling it. And I, a lot of times people are talking about return to work. And first of all, I don't really use that term at all because I think we're all working as hard, if not harder. Um in terms of this particular time. So it's return to the office. So I've been thinking about this in a few different ways. So I'm going to start with the return to the office and then talk about some travel and gifts and hospitality types of things that have been on my mind. So first of all, with, with the return to offices, we, I really hope by now that, the, that um, leaders and organizations are also coordinating with their ethics and compliance functions, as well as their HR compliance um, functions to be looking at. And this is for you know, not for places where you, you know, the places that have been dealing with this throughout the pandemic, where it's restaurants, service industries, other things, but some of the organizations where we have people who have been fortunate enough to be able to continue their jobs and, and work from home. Um, and now suddenly we have this, you know, returning to the office question, and it, it brings up several more questions. First of all, does everybody need to, to go back? Some people really don't want to. Some people have really good reasons to be able to work from home, commute avoidance, um, you know, other things. And some people really do need and want the opportunity to be in an office. So I think one of the things to really keep in mind is don't, this is not a great time to go back to thinking the one size fits all will discipline people if they don't come back, if they're, you know, if we don't want them to, you know, if, if you've got managers who just want everybody in the office because they like having their team around, this is a time to realize that not only is that probably not the best approach um, from a management standpoint, that may cause a lot of issues from uh, ethics and compliance or people saying we're not being treated fairly if we, you know, we don't want to come back or if somebody has, you know, immune deficiencies, so maybe they can't get the vaccination, so they have to wear a mask all the time when others don't, so there may be you know, disparate treatment. I think this is a really important time to really work at addressing the concerns of roles, offices, and individuals. And while that can be very cumbersome at the earlier part of this, it's a lot easier to say everybody come in for three days um, or these hours. It is much, I think, gonna behoove all organizations in the long run to really look at that um, critically. And as the way that will best address both the business and individual concerns. Um, the second thing, when I think about travel, it almost seems like, at least I live in Washington, D.C., suddenly seemed like in about a two-week stretch, the entire city went from wearing masks and not being able to go anywhere to everything's open, let's get going. And it felt it's felt a little bit, you know, like such a fast move. Um, and that I feel like is similar with, with travel. Um, and I mean, I'm seeing that now suddenly there are lots of meetings that are being scheduled in person, which I think is fantastic for people who want to see each other, but may raise some of the concerns that we talked about before. Um, but also it, it's been quick and I think at least it feels quickly. So um, addressing things related to that can be really challenging. The first thing I think about is now with investigations. Um, 
for, for those of us who do a lot of investigations, I found it very challenging um, to not be able to go somewhere for a week and, and show up in an office and do what needs to get done. Um, I have some concern that people will say if things didn't completely fall apart, you know, are they going to limit budgets, management saying, look, we have all these new innovative things like Zoom or you know, go to meeting or lots of ways to do things that we've learned from before. Well, you know, isn't that sufficient? I think the answer in some cases may be yes, but in some cases really maybe no. There is, you know, a, a need to be able to open doors, to see paper for older uh, investigations and other things, and to get things done more quickly. So I am interested to see how that, from a practitioner standpoint and from an investigative standpoint, comes in. The uh, second thing that I've thought a lot about, and I'm seeing this right now, is with um, you know gifts and hospitality requests and pre-approvals versus post-approvals and other things. Because for a long time now, we haven't been dealing with people taking people to lunch or to dinners or to want to go to events, it's all been very, very much virtual. So people have been very creative in a positive way, thinking how do you, you know, follow up on sales leads or address different things through a, um, you know, through, through a, you know, a, a video or other world perspective. But now suddenly you have people coming back um, and forgetting what some of the requirements are for different states. In, in my organization, um, I work with Pearson, so education professors are, are often public officials and the rules will change. And this is for the U.S. state to state, um, what people are required to do, what they can do, what they can't do. And so it's a little bit of retraining, but also, you know, keep an eye on that because people haven't done it in a year and a half. They're excited to go out. They're excited to do different things. And next thing you know, you may have a complete onslaught of requests you may have, you know, gotten used to not getting. And at the same time, people may be doing things that they're not in bad intent. It's just those laws are very, very picky. Um, and I think the last point I want to make is I'm speaking about some of this. Maybe it's because it's, uh, you know, I'm based in the U.S. Um, that but globally, the concerns are also different. Um, whether it's entertainment or hospitality, as we we're talking about before, there are different requirements and there are also different concerns with different variants and ability to come in and leave your homes. So I think when I talk about one size fits all, um, I think there are a lot of different places that you're not going to be able to have people return to the office and you have to be patient and understanding and recognize that the concerns will continue to be different and to go on for a while. So these are some of the things that I just think about a lot. So, Matt, do you have a comment for Lisa? Well, uh, just a comment for for Lisa, certainly, and for everybody listening to think about. You know, one thing that I am looking at as I read the news and thinking about is how this new Delta variant is going to affect corporate policies and frankly, corporate culture generally, because it seems very clear to me that this Delta variant is still very dangerous to someone who is unvaccinated. And I suspect it is not that dangerous or maybe not dangerous at all to the vaccinated. And thanks to our very divisive and topsy-turvy political culture in the United States, it's almost like we have a geographic and political split over vaccinated versus unvaccinated and what might happen if, even if we don't require returning to the office, but if it's a voluntary thing and we have a large number of vaccinated people in one part of the country saying, yeah, you know what, I'm going to go back because it's no big deal. 
Um, but you have other people in the other parts of the United States in less vaccinated areas who still have a very big public health threat. Like, how are we going to square that if you're one national organization? And I, I, I'll just say this, you know, for example, I saw that Los Angeles County has just re-recommended using masks indoors for the general public, including the vaccinated, because they very specifically said we are out to protect the unvaccinated. And there's going to be a fair number of vaccinated people who are saying, why am I supposed to slow my game down? Because some people are willingly choosing not to get vaccinated. Now, if you have a medical reason or a religious exemption, you are a separate category, and I will put you off to the side that you don't need to get vaccinated, and I understand that. But a lot of people who aren't getting unvac or aren't getting vaccinated just because they don't want to do it, and there's no good reason for that. And I can see an undercurrent of resentment that may build up in certain parts of the country against other parts. I worry about that. I don't know what the right answer is, but I. I have this niggling feeling in the back of my brain that by September, if this Delta variant is really spreading, like we're going to have some really difficult corporate culture fights to deal with. And I, I don't know what the right answer is, but that's what's on my mind as I'm looking at these issues. All right, team, we are on to fan favorites of shout outs and rants. We're going to take uh, the same order. And so, Matt Kelly, do you have a shout out and or rant for us today? I have a shout out today. I would like to uh, call out some legislation that is passing through Congress. It's uh, meandering through Congress, not enacted yet, to protect inspectors general at the executive branch of the federal government. Uh, I don't think this legislation has an actual name, but uh, as we might have all remember from the Trump administration, President Trump treated inspectors general within his administration terribly. Uh, didn't name them or did name people under an acting capacity and then shifted them around or he fired them because they were investigating uh, political associates of his. One quick example, he fired the acting AG of the State Department once that inspector general was investigating the former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, for using his office to conduct personal errands and for private political gain for when Pompeo tries to run in 2024. Anyways, inspector generals had inspectors general, I should say, uh, they really would took it on the chin for the last four years under the Trump administration. So Congress, the House of Representatives recently passed legislation that would add more protections to IGs. Uh, they could only be removed for cause. They would be granted the authority to subpoena testimony from witnesses who are not currently government employees. Um, they would be have to actually be required to notify Congress if agencies refuse to provide access to documents or witness testimony from government employees or anything like that. Uh, so it is a move to give inspectors general more support, uh, make it more difficult to retaliate against them for doing difficult uh, investigations. It passed in the House narrowly. Is it going to pass the Senate? Who knows, because Mitch McConnell doesn't like anything to pass for any reason ever. Uh, but we should think about inspectors general in the federal government and the protections that we can give them so they can be more objective and uh, fulsome truth seekers and investigators 
trying to get to the bottom of misconduct in government agencies. I know we tend to talk about the private sector here, but we need to give a shout out to our public sector brethren who are inspectors general. I hope this legislation will somehow come to pass and we can put a more support behind inspectors general because they need it. And that's my shout out for this month. Jay Rosen, do you have a shout out and or rant for us? I have a shout out to first responders. Their work is dangerous, heartbreaking, and I don't know how they can muster the composure to do what they do. It's a shame they're often called to the front lines of danger, but we are lucky to have them to be the ones to protect us and run into the burning buildings. Thank you for all that you do. So I have a shout out today for uh, everyone who has ever heard me talk knows the three most important things of any compliance program are document, document, document. So today I'm going to shout out to the Trump Organization for following my prescription of document, 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 which led to the indictment of its CFO, Alan Weisselberg. Uh, and I'm going to quote here from Slate Magazine. Lest anyone think this might have been an innocent mix-up over additional benefits, which should have counted as taxable income, the Trump Corporation allegedly maintained an internal spreadsheet that included the fringe benefits alongside Weisselberg's formal salary and bonuses to document how his real compensation added up to the agreed $940,000. So the fringe benefits were explicitly and directly deducted from Weiselberg's gross pay in that separate spreadsheet, which may have as may as well have read, here's a detailed description of how we conducted our illegal tax crimes. So lest you think document, document, document only applies to compliance, well, here it applied to the Trump Organization, and it's led to the indictment of its chief financial officer and an indictment of the Trump organization itself. So shout out to the most ubiquitous phrase in compliance, at least in my mind, document, document, document. Lisa Fine, do you have a shout out and or rant for us? I have both. Um, I'll start with my, somebody had to rant, right? Um, so I'll start with a quick rant. And this is something that I mentioned on um, our podcast a few months ago uh, when I in my individual episode, and I, I feel it very strongly, is this, the, the overuse lately of the word, the term thought leader. Um, I think everybody who is working and challenging themselves to become you know, a, a thought leader forgets often that that doesn't just mean we're sitting, you know, I feel very fortunate to be sitting with all of you today being able to discuss my thoughts. But just as many times you have people in organizations and people making an impact and unsung heroes every day, bringing their thought leadership and decision-making in so many different contexts. So I think oftentimes when we hear that in presentations or you know, webinars or big discussions, I think that you, we forget and that people that they're, as they're building their careers, you can be a thought leader many different ways all the time and in many different contexts. So that was my, my rant. Um, uh, my shout out is, and, and I have to say, document, 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 Tom, is one of my favorite phrases from even before my compliance days. So I think it's a universal one. So I just love that the Trump 
that, that that was used by them, the organization. But I will say that my shout out is to people who speak up and raise valid concerns. I think that it is it takes a lot of courage to go out there and put yourself out when you think something go, went wrong. And I think even when Matt's talking about that at the beginning, I think with World Whistleblower Day, I know there are a variety of different ones to honor that. I, I, I think that the courage and the people who raise those concerns and with the pain that they go through often as a result of it um, deserve a shout out all the time, but particularly um, right now and generally, I think that that was my shout out to those who raise concerns, blow the whistle um, and have the courage to you know, do the right thing when it feels like the odds are stacked against them. Well, lady and gentlemen, this has been a great episode. A special thanks and shout out to Lisa Fine for joining us. Lisa, I hope that uh, perhaps we can ask you back to be a guest panelist in the future. And gentlemen and Lisa, uh, till next time. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks, Tom. Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. We've listed the contact information for all of the participants in the show notes. So if you have any questions on anyone's commentary, please contact them directly. Also, we will be live streaming this show for the foreseeable future. Uh, Please check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. Uh, I put out announcements with the date and time. So I hope you will join us for a live stream presentation of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.